0: We'll turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 this morning, verses 12 through 17. I woke up this morning with one of those nagging coughs, so I apologize at the start. Um, I don't know about you and your life. There are certain moments in my life where I've experienced what I would describe as just a deep darkness. Um, Standing with a couple who has lost their newborn... Um, sitting in an office listening to um, just some horrific confessions of sin by someone uh, when I was fresh out of seminary thinking, now I'm ready to help people, and blown away uh, sitting in this tiny little office hearing uh, what this young man had done. Standing in the hallway when the doctor uh, told me that my wife had cancer, No, knew I should have left that one out. <clears throat> it's doing good till then. But just darkness moments, right? Um, certainly, I think of a long season uh, as a teenager because of sins that I was doing, just feeling this overwhelming weight of darkness. And, and so I think that in our lives, whether it's sins that we have done or sins that have been done against us, or sins that we have witnessed, there can just be this cloud this lingering cloud and sometimes it just feels like this heavy foggy weight and other times it feels like an impenetrable depths of darkness and how do we function through that and there is a theme that is developed around the arrival of christ primarily in the gospel of john that christ is the light of the world and we have this this creation kind of echo when everything is dark and then god says let there be light and it's important for us to realize and to recognize that the ultimate darkness that we all are just working our way through, slogging our way through, is the result of sin. We live in a sin-fallen world. And so disease and death and hardship and horrific things, they are all manifested in this theme that helps us to understand darkness. And so this morning, as Matthew is coming now to the conclusion of laying the foundation, and now he wants to talk about the the initial steps of the ministry of Christ, he reaches back to Isaiah to pull a prophecy forward to let his readers know Jesus is the King of Light that was foretold so many years ago. And so I want to read from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17 Maybe hang another main idea for us to think about what this truth, how it should resonate with us, and then we'll just work our way through the text this morning. So Matthew writes this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, most of you know that I'm a bit of a history buff. I love history and Uh, There was no way for me to read through this text and not immediately think of that famous moment when General MacArthur returns uh, to the Philippines on Leyte Island. This happened on October twentieth, 1944. It had been two years since he had had to flee away. Uh, He wanted to stay. President Roosevelt ordered him and as many troops as he could to leave the Philippines and to go to Australia. And so that's what MacArthur had done. But famously, he had told them, I will return. A quote, when he gets in Australia, he says, I came through, I shall return. The Japanese quickly occupied the Philippines and uh, ultimately controlled 40% of the Philippines. About 60%, which was honestly almost just inhospitable land, was controlled by Filipino guerrillas who fought valiantly over the course of those two years. But the Japanese really came to control all of the major areas of the Philippines. Their, their control and occupation was brutal. Um, frequently, when the Japanese would occupy, it was a brutal kind of occupation. They famously took the American soldiers, and most of them went on the, what was known as the Bataan Death March, where over 7,000 American soldiers perished because they were held back from clean drinking water, any kind of food, and were just literally marched to death. Uh, clothes falling off of them, they looked like skeletons. By the end of it, uh, they slaughtered wholesale young Filipino men, and many, many scores. They they estimate thousands of Filipino young women were forced into brothels to care for Japanese soldiers. Over the three-year occupation, total time of occupation, over 500,000 Filipino civilians were killed, half a million. Just a staggering result. And so to finally come at the end is they would hear small uh, reports that the American invasion, and because if you were to look at a map, essentially the Americans began to wait, work their way across the, specific, the Pacific from east to west. The Philippines are kind of at the far western end. And so they would hear stories of them coming where they would break through. And finally, they arrived on Leyte Island. And so John, General MacArthur finally shows up and says, I have returned. It's an unbelievable moment of joy. They've come through deep darkness, and now the king has returned, so to speak, and light has arrived with him. Uh, To this day, he's celebrated. Uh, They have a wonderful relationship with the United States. To go through deep darkness is too long for light. Nothing makes you yearn for it more than when you're in a dark and difficult place. It's not uncommon for children to be afraid of the dark. Psalm 35, verse 30 verse 5 picks up on this theme when it tells us weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so while John themes much of his gospel around darkness and light, Matthew wants to make his own emphasis here and create this powerful image by quoting from Isaiah 9. And I would want us to understand this morning the darkness of our lives and our world cry out for the king of light. They make us yearn for Jesus. Now, there can be good effects while not calling something good, right? So God can do an incredible work through evil, through dark times. That's not the same as calling that darkness good. But I do want to encourage you, the darkness that you and I experience and we go through in life can draw our hearts to a deeper yearning for the king of light to arrive, And so let's work our way through the text to try to understand that a little bit more. And and Matthew, if if you simply read it, I think you would pick up that theme. But there are some details in this text, and this prophecy, that would help us even more to understand how pervasive or how overwhelming this darkness actually is that is existing here. Now, Matthew skips, just so we're aware, he skips uh, some information here and he skips multiple months to get to this point. If you were to back up just to where we finished last week in Matthew chapter four, verse 11, we come to the end of the temptation of Christ. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Between verse 11 and verse 12 is somewhere like six to eight months of time. Why does Matthew do that? Because as a reminder to us, the Gospels are not written as a timeline historical biography of Jesus. They are sermons about his life. This is why one Gospel author even says this. There are so many more things that Jesus did. If I were to try to write them all, it'd fill all the books that exist. They understood. We can't tell you everything Jesus did. We're telling you a sermon, a story about him. They're factual. They're true. But just like any preacher, when he writes a sermon, he's less concerned necessarily with the linear progression of time as he is with making his points. Matthew's making a point, and by skipping here, he is actually building to make a point. And so just so you're aware of the history, Jesus finishes his baptism, and he begins his ministry. In uh, multiple months past prior to the arrest of John the Baptist. Matthew will come back to that kind of information, actually, in Matthew 11. Uh, some of the other gospel authors are a little bit more linear at this point. And so the fact that Matthew skips that timeline as a Bible reader and studier, it should kind of perk you up and say, why would you do that? What are you doing? Because he's meaning something by doing that, and he's making a point. He wants to move very quickly from Jesus in exile in Egypt to the forerunner John the Baptist, to Jesus' baptism, to his temptation, and now the beginning of his ministry. It's rapid fire that focuses, strangely enough, on two key things, the Gentiles and darkness. You might remember when we started working through the genealogy or the Genesis account uh, that Matthew gives us of Jesus and his ministry, that Luke focuses on all the wonderful things. Matthew focuses on all the horrible things, right? Um, You've got women included in the account that were Gentiles um, and some who uh, were considered lower because of sexual sin in their lives. Matthew includes them, makes a point to include them. Uh, He's not ashamed to include them. Matthew includes wise men who are Gentiles who come to see the baby Jesus. But in that he includes Herod who wants to kill the baby Jesus, the slaughter of the innocents, and the fleeing away to Egypt. He includes the near divorce between Joseph and Mary. Like He includes all really hard things. And it continues to flow into this moment. The darkness of the Genesis story of Jesus from Matthew's telling is being built here to do two things. One, Matthew wants Jesus' life and ministry to be accessible to us. You know, I think when you go through life, it's easy for you to perceive that others have it easier or better than you do. Now, Um, sometimes that's true. But I think all of us at various times and seasons struggle with believing that, whether it's true or not. And so what we are aware of is that there are dark areas of our lives. One of the things I love about the Bible is it does not shy away from the difficult things. And Matthew, by emphasizing this, is making Jesus accessible to people who experience darkness in their lives. I think that's the first reason he's building it this way. The second, though, is the answer to that darkness. So the first reason is to make it accessible because we go through seasons of darkness. His readers have experienced dark things in their lives. But the answer to that is King Jesus bringing the light into our lives, And so he wants to emphasize that even Jesus is accessible to those in darkness because Jesus shines the glorious light of his reign into this dark world, piercing it with his power and his love and his joy and his hope. And so let me just point out to you some of these dark things as they build even in these brief verses. First of all, you have this arrest of the faithful one. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, we've only been introduced to one other guy in the story of Jesus from Matthew who's a faithful follower. Um, it's, it's John. He, he's, we know from other gospel accounts he's Jesus' cousin and his own birth was foretold. And, and Matthew, as he's starting Jesus' ministry, tells you, now John got arrested. He goes right to it. Jesus comes out of victory but a dark place in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The very next thing he tells you, his faithful people get arrested. It's hard to follow Jesus, isn't it? It's not easy. It's so hard, you can't do it. Without the help and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He says, I know exactly what this is like. And so he opens by reminding us if you're gonna stand for truth, if you're gonna speak with integrity, if you're gonna love God and others more than yourself, it's gonna cost you because you're in a dark world. It's going to be difficult for you at times. The fact of the matter is, because I follow Christ, because we follow Christ, when someone sins against us, Christ calls us to be willing and open and ready to forgive them. There's lots of people in this world, I'd much rather just cut them out of my life, hold a grudge. I don't have that luxury as a follower of Jesus, do I? Jesus calls me to speak truth and stand for truth. There's lots of times I'd rather keep my mouth shut and just take easy street, you know? Why do I got to say something? I was talking to my kids this week about, and I've shared it before, about one of my first jobs. And I was trying to go through Bible college and trying to pay my own way. And I had this job and worked with, <laughs> I've worked jobs with some just some unsavory characters. So I'm working this job with these guys. And they bring me in the office. They're like, hey, we'd like to give you a promotion. We'd like to give you a supervisor role. You're going to drive this group of guys downtown D.C., put in office furniture. It'd be great. Um, and it was like a 4 or $5 an hour pay bump, which is huge back then, Right. Um, Today, that'll just let you buy one more cup of coffee at Starbucks. But back then, it was a big deal, particularly for a young 20-year-old guy trying to pay my way through Bible college. They said, there's just one thing. Lots of the guys like to relax on the way back out of D.C. By relaxing, they like to smoke weed. And they were like, so we just need you to be quiet. So I'm going to basically be driving a van full of weed-smoking guys outside of D.C. on federal highways. Mm. Everybody did it. All the other supervisors did it. They said, but we know, you. we've heard about you talking about Jesus on break times and stuff, and so we're going to need you to agree to not make this a big deal. And I'm like, I, how do I not do it? No. I didn't get the promotion, right? Like, and, and let's be honest, in the scope of life, I feel like that's an easy one. I'm not going to drive a van full of guys smoking weed. Like, but there's a cost. And I think that was as much as I could handle at that time in my life. But there's a cost to following, and he's telling us this. Some of the darkness that comes into our lives, because we live in this sin fallen world, and so even when we're trying to do what is right and follow Christ, it's going to cost you. Jesus doesn't hide this from us. He describes it as, take up your cross and follow me. He describes it as, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But listen to how his rest is described, take my yoke upon you. Now, it is restful because you're pulling together with Christ in the power of the Spirit. But there is a darkness that pervades it. It's wrong when righteous people suffer. It is wrong when the innocent suffer. It is wrong when Christians suffer for following Christ. There is a darkness of injustice. There's a darkness for suffering for doing what is right that cries out for life, for light. And so he starts right there. He moves on from that, though. And he talks about Jesus moving away from Nazareth and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, this is interesting. Matthew does not go into detail right now about why Jesus leaves Nazareth. Jesus has grown up in Nazareth. He spent from at least two, three, four until he's about 30 in Nazareth. So this is where he's lived. This is where he's done life. The people in Nazareth know who he is. They they understand, isn't this Joseph's son? Matthew doesn't tell you here why he leaves Nazareth. He simply references it to the the arrest of John the Baptist. Later, we'll get more detail from Matthew. He doesn't want to distract us here, except the readers in Greek would have understood something that we miss. The readers in the Greek, the word that he uses here is not simply a physical move. It would actually read better this way. And abandoning Nazareth. It's a much more forceful kind of language of, I got to get out of Dodge. I'm out of here. I'm doing away with this. There are multiple rejections, rejections of Jesus at Nazareth. There's at least three different times Jesus is in Nazareth and they reject him. One of them is when they try to kill him. Jesus speaks. They don't like what he says, and they go and try to kill him. Their rejection of Jesus was so severe that he was limited in the amount of miracles that he could do there because he had to leave Nazareth. This is his home town. You've heard it said a prophet is without honor in his own country. Jesus actually references that. What's it like when your own people reject you? They've watched Jesus grow up. They've seen him as a little boy. They've interacted with him. They've seen him as a teenager, as a young man. They've seen him working with his father. They've seen him doing right. He would have had a perfect reputation. John the Baptist knew enough about him to know he's more righteous than I am. And none of these people want Jesus. And it's not just the people. His own brothers and sisters reject him. Now, Matthew doesn't want to go down that rabbit trail because in his sermon, he's reserving some of those details for later. But his readers would have known enough to know when they read that language there was a problem. A big problem. There is a darkness when the people who know you best reject you the most. There's a darkness that cries out for wisdom in the face of that kind of foolishness. We can't control others. I'll never forget I was uh, in one relationship at one point in my life and Um, I wasn't sure what I should do. Should I stop pursuing this girl or not? And this is not Beth Ann. Um, I went and got counsel from somebody. And the counsel was this. uh, You should thank God every day that he has delivered you from this albatross around your neck. Run with freedom. That was hard to hear at that time. So I wanted to chase this girl. And I had it in my mind, if she would just grow in a couple areas of the way she thought and processed life, we would have a wonderful life together. And so it felt like my life and happiness were completely dependent on her growth, foolishness, sin, or wisdom or righteousness. Have you ever been in a spot where it feels like your happiness or joy or success is chained to what somebody else does? And you can't control them. You're going to try. If you're anything like me, you're going to try to control them. There's all kinds of ways we can control people, right? Manipulation, anger, resentment, backbiting, slander, gossip, abuse. There's all kinds of ways people try to control others when they believe that you are the obstacle to my happiness. It is incredibly difficult to live in a world where somebody else is making astoundingly foolish decisions and it's costing you. The Bible will later said that Jesus couldn't do many miracles there because of his foolishness. Like, there's this limited, it doesn't, there is a darkness that happens when your life and my life seems to be deeply impacted by the foolishness and sin of others. He goes on from there, though, and talks about where Jesus goes to. It says that he goes to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, this is an interesting geographical kind of story that goes back in history and it's important for you to understand and he's citing this prophecy from isaiah 9 the land of zebulun the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan galilee of the gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned now that's fascinating because we would look at that and we would say oh that's verse 16 just talking about salvation and it is primarily talking about salvation. But like much of scripture, there's a dual reference here. And one is to the history of this region. Now, the area of Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, if you, uh, some of you have maps in your Bible, some of you don't. So um, if you were to look at it maybe on this map, uh, super tiny, it's really hard to see. If you think about in Israel, you have uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern part. Capernaum is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a a city of about 1,500 people. Uh, I was doing some research this week. If you were to think about the land area size of Capernaum, it's roughly the equivalent of our property and the YMCA property combined. Uh, Just so you have a feel for it. About 1,500 people or so lived there. But Capernaum was a major trade route. And it was a major port where people would bring fish and fish out of into the Sea of Galilee. Lots of people traveling north and south uh, through Capernaum. Lots of them traveling from the Sea of Galilee to the coastal regions and back and forth to to do trade. And so it was a very mercantile, uh, uh, the best we could come up with in our modern days, middle class kind of place. The Sea of Galilee itself, just so you get a feel for it, is about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. In one sense, in one sense, it seems very normal to go there. It's about 40 miles away from Nazareth, about 40 miles from those that are rejecting Jesus. But it also seems unusual because if Jesus has come uh, as the Messiah, as the king to Israel, why isn't he going further south to Israel or to Jerusalem? So to go to Capernaum, he's going to like the far northern region of Israel, and he's about 100 miles away from the capital city. Uh, Several days walk for them. Why? Why go there? Well, he's telling us. Matthew's telling us it's because of this prophet Isaiah. It has everything to do with history. So, real quick, history reminder: uh, the nation of Israel, twelve tribes. Uh, you have David, then you have Solomon, and when Solomon dies, they the nation splits. The t- northern ten tribes split away from the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and so those become known as Judah. Um, And the northern ten tribes become known as Israel. The northern ten tribes reject Davidic rule. They don't want to be ruled by the line of David. They um, very quickly go into idolatry, just some horrific practices. They will ultimately be the first ones that are invaded. And so they're warned by various prophets. Um, they don't respond. they never have a good king. The southern kingdom kind of waffles back and forth between good kings, bad kings. The northern kingdom never has a really good king. And so finally comes this climactic moment, about 732 BC, where Assyria invades them. Assyria at the time was the world's superpower just to the north of Israel. The very first place they entered was this region. As they came from the north into the south, This is where they arrived. And so on this little tiny map, you can see it down here where all those little arrows converge. The Assyrians were a brutal dynasty. Uh, They were known to rule by forced sexual assault, by killing young men. Uh, They would then carry away other military-age men. Uh, The closest numbers historians give us for this first captivity is somewhere around 13,000 men were carried away. And they then imported their own Assyrian men into the region and forced marriage upon them. They would ransack entire cities, raise them to the ground. They particularly loved to carry away any kind of religious iconography, their whole goal was to completely remove the identity of the people they invaded. They didn't just do this to Israel. They did this anywhere they invaded. It's so significant that these 10 tribes, due to the Assyrian invasion and captivity, they are known to this day as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. Uh, in northern regions of Iran and Iraq, some of the tribes' people they still claim Jewish heritage, and they to this day have Jewish surnames because the Jews carried away to that region. they became so deluded, they become rejected by all the rest of the Jews. And so it became known very shamefully as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's estimated that over 50% of the population was Gentile by the time Jesus was arriving and doing ministry. They have this constant dark cloud over the whole region. Who wants to go there? What real Jew would want to work there? Certainly, the Messiah wouldn't come there. I'll never forget when I went away to school, <clears throat> I moved into this dorm, and the day after I moved in, uh, a guy arrived to take all of his stuff out of the room that I had moved into. There's supposed to be four of us in this room. One of the guys, he comes in, he's packing all his things and i just noticed in the dorm itself just it was like all the energy was gone out of the dorm and everybody was quiet as this guy's packing his stuff up and he had been a star linebacker on the football team and he had he had made some some bad choices and as a result he had been expelled from school and i just remember he wouldn't hardly talk to anybody everybody was quiet there was just it felt like a dark cloud of shame Before I left school, after he sat out for a year of expulsion, he had returned. And I remember everybody was excited for him to be back, but he always seemed to carry this dark cloud. He hadn't wrestled through the shame of what he had done and the way he thought people viewed him. There is a darkness that can sometimes just feel like it follows you everywhere. Uh, You remember the old Charlie Brown comics with Pigpen? He always has that cloud following him. Eeyore. Eeyore. Always seems to have that rain cloud over him. Um, Just this dark cloud. This whole region is an area with a deep, dark cloud hanging over them. A legacy of failure. A legacy of rejection. A legacy of idolatry. A legacy of imposed religion upon them that lacks grace, love, and mercy. About 100 years before Jesus showed up, the Maccabees had led their revolt and they went into that region and they forced every single man to be circumcised and become a Jew. They weren't really Jews. They weren't really following God. But it was like, well, we better do this or they're going to kill us. And so when Jesus goes to this region, it is like, it's like the darkest area of Israel. Why go there? And so then I think that helps to prepare us to receive how the king of light arrives. When Cormac McCarthy, the modern day novelist, he wrote he's written a number of novels. Um, One of them is The Road. The Road is about a post-apocalyptic journey of a father and his son. The mother has taken her own life, and so now you just have this father and son traveling through region of the eastern part of the United States in this post-apocalyptic world that's just been absolutely devastated. And as Cormac McCarthy describes the world, he infuses it with darkness. Like it is a darkened region, whether it's a result of nuclear warfare or fallout or uh, just mass pollution and uh, an environmental event. You're not totally sure, but it's just dark all the time and um, just difficult to move through. Uh, Some people love living in places where there's lots of rain. There's other people have, it's actually called SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, right? Where if you don't have enough sunlight, it makes you sad. And so it's just like living in this world, and uh, because there is no real law, there's no restraint, and so it's a world filled with with just horrific assaults and cannibalism and no food, and you can't trust anybody. It's dark, and Cormac McCarthy does this intentionally because as the father interacts with his young son, he keeps telling him, we carry the light. And it's up to the reader to discern what is the light. And the light seems to be morals... And ethics. And so if the father does something that violates what we would commonly think of as moral morality and ethics in our day, the son even confronts his father. Don't we carry the light? So when you get to the end of the novel, <clears throat> the father dies, spoiler alert, um, the son connects with another family and you're terrified as the reader. Because you've read through a novel you can't trust anybody even the father who carries the light will have done horrific things to protect his son and the little boy looks at this family and asks them do you hold the light it's his way of just asking can i trust you can we get through this dark dismal world together the light is goodness and safety in a world full of darkness It only takes a spark to shine brightly. And to all of this darkness, the arrest of John the Baptist and the abandonment of Nazareth in this whole dark region, and to the darkness of your life and my life, he quotes Isaiah telling us, a light comes, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The first thing we need to understand then about this king is he is a king for everyone. The king of light comes to a region in an an unexpected place and and so it, it seems shocking that this is where Jesus begins. Matthew has raced to this moment because Matthew wants his readers to know King Jesus did not just come for the Jews, he came for everybody. Now, To Matthew, that might have mattered more than any of the other disciples. Because Matthew is a tax collector who has experienced rejection. When Matthew wants to throw a party for Jesus, because that's what he does, he throws a great feast. It says he invites all of his friends. You know who his friends were? The Bible describes them as the other tax collectors, prostitutes, and other really bad sinners, is how they're described. That's who... Matthew's buddies were the kind of people that your mom and dad told you don't be friends with. Matthew's buddies, I was joking with um, a friend last night. We were joking about, you know, when school administrators say, I'm sure some of you have heard this, look to your right, look to your left, at the end of this year one of them will not be there. And I remember I've only had that happen one time in my life. It was the start of my eighth grade year. And I remember looking to my right, looking to my left, and thinking, this is so stupid, this is so hokey. I got kicked out by February, right? I was that guy. It was like, whoops. Uh, This was a prophetic fulfillment. There's There's this whole sense that Matthew, all of his friends and his buddies are terrible people. Can I say it this way? They're people like us. Now, if I say that and that offends you, then you don't understand your sin because we are not better than sellouts and traitors and criminals. We are not better than sex workers. We are not better than the rejected and despised of this world. We are all sinners, all of us. And it's the religious hypocrite that looks at others and says, I thank God I'm not as bad as them. And Jesus condemns that. So Matthew's writing his gospel. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to wonder who's going to read what Matthew's written. Even if they're not saved, do you think Matthew is going to want his still even lost friends to read what he's writing? He wants them to know from the get-go King Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for everybody. Because everybody dwells in deep darkness, and they all need the light. And so he begins declaring this in his genealogy. He includes Rahab and Ruth, Gentiles. He includes the presence of Gentile wise men in the birth story. He skips some events in the timeline of Jesus to make the emphasis at the start of his ministry. He's preaching to Gentiles. The whole area is estimated to be over 50% Gentile and those that aren't Gentiles are the remnants of ones that were forced to become Jewish followers by the Maccabees 100 years prior. He has not just come to be king of the Jews or king of the Western world or king of white people or king of conservatives or king of the smart or the beautiful. Jesus has come to be king for all the broken, sinful, foolish, weak and needy of this world. He has come as the king to bring light to all who are in darkness. He has come to be your king. And Matthew wants us to know that. But he's not just a king for everyone. He's a king of redemption. When Isaiah gives this prophecy, and now Matthew repeats it, uh, the geographical markers here are kind of fascinating. This is another one of those moments. It's like, oh, when you dig deeper into the Bible, you'll start to see and understand things. You're like, I, I wouldn't have gotten that before. And so let me read it again. Then let me maybe give you an illustration. And then I'll show you on some maps how this works out. So that was was. So we'll pick up verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now that's fascinating because that, he's giving you directions. Now let me give you a companion. That would be like if I were giving you directions how to get downtown. I would say make a left out of our parking lot and the YMCA will be on your right. You're going to go through two lights and you'll find Cracker Barrel on your right The next light, make a right, right? And then you're going to cross over 26, make a left to merge onto 26, stay on 26, don't get off at Malfunction Junction, blow right by the exit, stay on 26, it turns into 126, you'll know it because you'll see the city skyline right in front of you. And everybody thinks it's the Capitol, but it's the old Bull Street uh, sanatorium and insane Asylum. And you'll find yourself, that's how I'd give you directions. And I would give you directions based upon how you go from here to there. When he gives directions in Isaiah, and Matthew quotes it, he doesn't give them like you're going from Jerusalem to Capernaum, or you're going from Nazareth to Capernaum. He reverses it. And he gives directions like you're coming from the other direction entirely. Like you are coming from the northeast. And you are making this journey. Again, this is one of those moments, unless you and I lived in Israel, we don't catch it. But it's critical to understanding what Isaiah is saying and what Matthew is quoting. Why? The road that he quotes Jesus' coming down has been nothing but a road of suffering. It's a road that people coming out of the wilderness of sin would have walked down to get there. It's a road of reversal. Because when the Assyrians came, they came that same direction, and when they carried people away, that's where they were gone to. I remember as a little boy, my dad taking work trips uh, long before 9-11. So you could, it was cool then, to fly was cool then. And you could go all the way to the gate and watch, sit with them until somebody got on the plane and you would watch the plane actually pull out and fly away. And I remember as a little boy watching my dad go off on one of these trips and us coming back a week or so later to pick him up and we would park, And we would walk in and we'd go. And I remember as a little boy one time being very bothered because we were not going to the same gate I saw my dad depart at. And I, I, because I I didn't understand it, right? I I didn't understand that land those planes anywhere. Um, You have to look at the screens. I didn't know that. I thought as a little boy, I expected him to see him return the same way he left. If you were a woman in, in this region, in the region of Capernaum, and they had taken away your daughters, they they had taken away your sons, and your husband had marched away, do you think she's going to walk out of her house at any point and look to the way she had seen her husband go and hope against hope she might see him walk down the road? That's absolutely what you do. Your expectation is that there be some hope, some deliverance, some reversal of your sorrow. When the prophecy is being given by Isaiah, it's at this time. It's at this time when the Assyrians are going to come. And it is though he is saying, by the same means it has seemed that your sorrow has come, the king of light will reverse all your suffering and all your sorrow. And from where it seemed like pain came, listen now, where it seemed pain came into your life, You will experience great hope and love and joy. That is mind warping for us. But it is the gospel. Because when Christ comes and begins meeting us in an awareness of who we are, suddenly it's like we have Jesus sitting across from us telling us, You are a sinner. And you are a sinner, and you know it. You're a sinner by birth, you're a sinner by action. You know you're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, I can have nothing to do with sin. Your sin will cost you. Your sin condemns you. And the same voice that is telling us then begins to tell us, but I want you to hear me now. I love you, and so I have come and lived for you, and I've died on your behalf. Come to me, and I will rescue you from your sin and your sorrow. It's reversal. It's what we call redemption. Redemption is a buying back. It's a reversal of ownership. And the very geographical markers here are intended to tell us that the road that brought darkness and sorrow now brings light and joy to us. Jesus comes out of the wilderness of sinful temptation. It's how Matthew ends it. The devil left him. Behold, angels came were ministering to him. Now when he heard John had rested, he withdrew into Galilee. It's immediate. I go from here to this because I want you to know what I am doing. This area that has rejected Davidic rule will now be ruled by the ultimate heir of David, King Jesus. And so it calls us then. Matthew is building to call us to embrace this king of light. I love a song by Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? And with each one of those, as Andrew Peterson sings it, the response is, it is, and he does. And yes, our heart longs for that. What darkness have you felt in this season of life? What affliction? What pain? What confusion? What sorrow? What longing? What hopelessness has invaded your world? Can the King of light and glory speak into your life with his victory and his glory and his power and his love and his forgiveness? He can. And so he tells us this by pointing out he understands you and he can solve the problem. And so if you hold your finger here, it's important for you to go back to Isaiah. So that you can truly see this. In Isaiah chapter 9, I was joking with my son this morning that we all have these mnemonic devices we use. Uh, I don't ever tighten a screw without saying "tidy righty loosey-lefty. Uh, I don't ever try to alphabetize something without saying the whole alphabet. And I rarely can find a book in the Bible without sight- reciting the list of them in my head. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But anyhow, Isaiah. We arrive at Isaiah 9. And I want you to see the fuller prophecy. Because I think it's important to end this morning with understanding how we can embrace the light in our lives. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Actually, let me just start right in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's now describing what it's like when the light comes into your kingdom. Why? Why do we have such joy? Why is there rejoicing at harvest? Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. In other words, because Jesus has come to all who are weary and heavy laden, and he has given them rest. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood would be burned as fuel for the fire. There's another prophecy that talks about them bleed, they're beating their, plowsha- their swords into plowshares. In other words, things that we had to use to destroy weapons of destruction now have become weapons of growth and redemption. This is just an utter transformation. Verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every one of those titles, and there's four of them there. There's four. Um, Wonderful Counselor is one together, despite Handel putting a comma there. There's four titles, and every one of them emphasizes that Jesus is truly man and truly God because each of the four titles has a human part and a divine part in the title. Why is that important? Because how can God declare to me he can deliver me from my darkness if he has no comprehension of what it's like to walk in darkness ever? Has Christ not experienced betrayal? Has Christ not experienced deep rejection? Has Christ not experienced sickness and suffering and sorrow and abuse? He tells us that he empathizes with us because he understands us. Part of the king of light, and this is really important, is he gets you. He gets you. But he can also do something about it. There is a power to sit with someone who can hear you and listen to you and hold your story and they get you. There's a whole nother power when they can actually fix it. I think one of the hardest things to do in ministering to people is to bear their story and know there's nothing you can do about it. That feels like a heavy weight, doesn't it? That's why the only hope I have as a Christian and as a pastor and as a friend is I can help carry you to the one who can. And I can carry your burden for you to him. And I know he will hear you. And he has the power to transform life. And so he is each of these, each of these terms. He's not just a counselor. He's not just someone who has incredible wisdom. If your darkness is confusion, and I don't know what to do with this situation. I don't know which way I should go. I don't know what to do. And there can be darkness that is deep of confusion of not knowing the next steps to take it. Feeling like you're in this pitch black room on a tight wire. And what do I, where do I step? And I don't want to, I don't want to make the wrong thing. And you need counsel and. the problem. Proverbs tells you that in a multitude of counselors there's safety and the Proverbs describes good counsel to to us and where we can find it. But Jesus isn't just the giver of human wisdom. He's the wonderful counselor. That term wonderful was routinely used to reference the miraculous working of God. One example, just because of time, one example from the Old Testament was when the Bible says that God parted the Red Sea and you want to talk about standing in a moment of confusion and darkness and I don't know what to do. Have a million people behind you and standing in front of a Red Sea and an army waiting to ride down on them and kill them. And so the Bible says that God split the Red Sea, carried them through on dry land. And this is what it says. Isn't it wonderful what God can do? It is the majestic display of his divine power. And so when you and I are in darkness and in confusion and maybe your darkness right now is I don't know what to do with this right now. I don't know what to do with my kids I don't know what to do with my parents. I don't, I don't know what to do with this health crisis. I don't know what to do with this financial pressure I don't know what to do with this school thing. I don't know what to do with this work thing. I don't I don't know what to do. It is into that that the King of Light comes with His divine power and His divine wisdom into your confusion. I'll assume that was an internal Amen. Because when I have not known what to do and Jesus shows up, have you ever been there? Oh, that is sweet. That, that is water in a desert land. He's not just the wonderful counselor, though. He's mighty and powerful. He's like we're in, hostage, in a hostage situation, and he's like the ultimate Navy SEAL showing up and, and redeeming and rescuing us. It says that he's the mighty God. And it's interesting there, the word mighty is a reference to like human power and strength, but he brings the divinity into it. And so he brings all the power of God himself to rescue us from the darkness of our world. I I think about, I can't deliver myself from the shame of my past. I have done things I will die regretting. I can't go back. But Jesus saw my shame. And like a prodigal son running home, he's taken his robes and put them on me. So the stink and the filth of my shame is covered with the robes of his righteousness. Only God can do that. I don't know what your darkness is this morning. Maybe your darkness is spoken into because he's the everlasting father. It's it's interesting because he's not trying to take the title of God the father here. The language is actually intimating how he rules. Um, Some of you had terrible fathers. Some of you haven't known your father. Some of you had wonderful fathers. But what's universal is we would all long to be led by a good dad. A dad who speaks truth to us, a dad who comforts us, a dad who teaches us, a dad who guides us, a dad who oversees our life. Not a dad who's a raging, unpredictable tyrant. A dad who's consistent and constant. A dad who's always there. A dad, um, I'll never forget this, at, at Enoch's funeral, one of the ministers who spoke talked about dads being like a mountain. It has stuck with me. Because you would always know where the mountain is. A good dad is there. I read a story this past week by a young lady. She talked about she was in college. She and three of her friends went off and were doing something. They they weren't being wise. They weren't being carnal, but they weren't being wise. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. The girl's car breaks down. They don't know who to call. Three of the girls are like, I don't want to call my parents. The one girl goes, oh, let me call my dad. She calls her dad. He answered on the third ring, where are you and what do you need? She goes, well, we're stranded. He never asked a question. He said, I'll be there in so many minutes. She said he showed up within the minute, loaded them all the girls in his car, and drove each of them to their houses, dropped them off, and as he drove, he was asking them about themselves and what are their plans in college and what do their future look like and um, made plans to help take care of them. And she realized afterwards she wasn't afraid to call him because she could have predicted that's how he would have responded because he's a good dad. When it says here he's the everlasting father, he's saying he's the good dad who will lead us and guide us and be there for us and help us and serve us and love on us. And when you have a good father, and I just want to remind you, he says I'm the father to the fatherless. There is a power in that. But in the normal course of life, our dads will precede us in death. And there will come a time he's not there, and so he tells us he's our what? Everlasting Father. So that you will always have that. I don't know where your darkness is. Maybe you need that, or maybe you need this last one, that he is the Prince of Peace. Now, you might wonder, why is he called the Prince of Peace instead of the King of Peace? Right? There's a reason, and I love the reason, because princes have ambition, kings have already arrived. Now, think about that. What that means is Jesus is ambition, ambitious to bring peace into your conflict. I love that. I think I want peace in my relational conflicts. I think I want peace and rest for my soul. But Jesus is more on mission than I am, because he is the ambitious prince of peace. And so when he gets saved, he brings peace in our relationship with God and man. And he sets us on a journey of being at peace with others. And so you can't control other people. And so we're even told by Paul, as much as lies within you, dwell at peace with all men. He tells to answer our anxieties of our life and he affirms to us his loving care and his provision, his protection for us because he's an ambitious God on mission to transform the darkness of your life and this world by being the king of light. And so I would call you then to rejoice because your king is here. If you're here this morning, you're bound in your chains of sin and darkness You stand at the very cusp, the doorway of having deliverance from your sin and your shame and your sorrow. Jesus has come to redeem you, to bring you into his care. He boldly then preaches this message to us. What does he say in Matthew? What are the first words we hear him preach? Repent, run from your sin, and come to me, for my kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is light into darkness. In this moment, Jesus is calling kingdom dwellers to himself. Would you be a citizen of a new kingdom? Is what he's saying. Come and be rescued by the King of Light, King Jesus. If you already know him, you're here this morning, you already know Christ. Can I call you to let your heart be drawn ever closer to his majesty and his power? You can embrace the light, the King of Light, again this week, but considering how does he bring wisdom into the darkness of your confusion? How does he bring power into your weakness? of mental, mental exhaustion and emotional uh, exhaustion and spiritual turmoil and physical suffering, how does he bring peace to you in those? He brings the rule into the disorder of your life. He's like a caring father, sweetly, lovingly, directly, and safely, with direction and help in times of trouble. He brings peace with himself in saving you and longs to bring peace to your anxious heart in your racing mind as you cast your cares on him, as you trust in his care of you more than sparrows, as you learn of him and lean on him, who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It is good to be conquered by the king of light, isn't it? And so I will quote what Jesus said. His kingdom has arrived. The darkness of our lives and our world cry out for the king of light. Will you rejoice and who he is and what he has done for you. Father, we thank you for your almighty power. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you, Father, that you came to a land darkened by sin and dark by its legacy of shame. I thank you, Father, that Matthew wants us to know how quickly that happened in your journey. He starts his story of you to emphasize that you came to be king for everyone. God, I love that about you. I love that it doesn't matter what our heritage or genealogy or genes say about us. It doesn't matter what our, what our health and mental awareness, it doesn't matter our physical appearance. You have come to be king of everyone. And Father, those of us who are dwelling in a land of darkness, it is good to be ruled by you and not ourselves. Father, help us to be a people then who rejoice and celebrate in the work of the king of light. Father, for any who do not know you, Lord, may they run from darkness, repent of their sin, and come to the king, trusting in his eternal care for them because of his sacrificial love for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus.